Hello, my name is Dama Mega and I'm the director of Windhorse Publications. Welcome to our new episode of this podcast. And today I had the great pleasure to speak with River Walton, who's one of our new authors. Her book, The Subtle Art of Caring, A Guide to Sustaining Compassion, will be coming out in November this month in 2023. And uh, River and I had a chance to talk about her life, her practice, her inspiration, and um, what made her write this particular book, which is aimed at people who are carers, people who are activists, aspiring bodhisattvas, who are up against the coalface of the emotional labor that comes with caring like this, um, and people who might be easily uh, suffering from overwhelm or empathetic distress. Um, so this whole book is a really beautiful recounting of the Buddha's teachings of the Brahma Viharas, of loving kindness, of joy, compassion, equanimity, rewritten with this audience in mind in order to be able to sustain compassion. I really enjoyed the conversation with River. I hope you will too. Hi, River. Good morning. Good morning. So it's really lovely to speak with you today. And uh, maybe we just start a little bit about you. Um, you know, you seem to have done so many things in your life. I was looking at your bio again. Been a carpenter, a social worker, a psychologist. You're a writer, a poet, a writing facilitator. I suppose... Um, what are the threads that have come out of this trajectory of your life and towards this book? Yes, thank you for this question. I've I've really had uh, you know it's been a, uh, had a lot of good fortune to be able to do many different things, and I was reflecting on this and thinking that actually it goes back to you know. Um, being a teenager and being really interested in ancient history and archaeology and at that point actually wanting to be an archaeologist and and uh, going on several digs and that sort of theme of uncovering, of discovery, of putting pieces together and of curiosity, I think sort of weaves through all these different elements um, the psychology, the spirituality, the creativity, it kind of comes through all of those and this kind of curiosity and interest in people, in in humanity, in how we got here, in where we're going. So I think that's kind of some of the bedrock, literally, those hours spent sort of scraping away with a trowel <laughs> in the earth. That's really interesting. I didn't realize we had that in common. My undergraduate degree was in archaeology. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I recognize the, yeah, I recognize the, the mental, <laughs> the sort of attitude um, that you, that you speak about there. Hmm. So this, this book that you've just written, which we'll be releasing in this month, November, uh, is, is really about what can happen to us when we care about these things care about people care about the condition of the world and and take individual take action about individual and collective dukkha whether you're a kind of care or whether you're an activist whether you're focused on say individual personal dukkha or like social dukkha um but also uh it's a complex it's a complex position it's a natural and a complex position to take to to be mobilized to care and to respond um, and uh, as you say in your book, often there can be a sort of harmful side effects if you like of that kind of um, wanting to care. You mentioned burnout and moral injury and uh, empathetic distress, so uh, I suppose. My question is sort of what have you seen or experienced in your own life in in that world of care and responsiveness that that has informed your writing? Yeah, I mean, reflecting on this takes me back um, actually to being a teenager again and becoming involved with CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament here in the UK. And um, 
having my awareness raised as to the vast amount of nuclear weapons that were in the world and how, um, you know, that the, this the combined sort of effect of these nuclear arsenals was many, many, many times the the amount that was um, used to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki and could destroy the world, you know, many times over. And I think waking up to that as a teenager. Um, you know, gave a lot of motivation and gave a lot of kind of passion and, and you know, wanting to do something. Um, but alongside that was this kind of overwhelming knowledge of this, you know, this potential destructive power that humanity has. And so those kind of dual, um, those dual threads really of caring, of, of, of being motivated to act, but also this the the potential of that tipping into the overwhelm, the despair, the kind of enormity of of what we were facing, what we are facing, um, it, you know, has continued through my life. And at that point, you know, being involved in um, going to you know going to Greenham Common Women's Peace Camp and going on marches and tasting also the flavor of of the the importance of what happens when we collectively act you know encircling the base at greenham or being on the marches or carrying out nonviolent direct action that, that that was so kind of both empowering and beautiful to do that collectively and creatively um and then also that undercurrent of of despair of of of, you know, of overwhelm, of compassion, fatigue. Um, and a teacher of mine at the time when I was a teenager kind of dismissed it by saying, oh, you know, you're a radical now, but by the time you're 40, you'll be a conservative. And so part of me, of course, was determined <laughs> to prove her wrong. <laughs> um, but, you know, it wasn't a deliberate actor. I mean, it just, that was the kind of how things, you know, carried, you know, how things continued to some extent. Um, and then in my 20s, through various kind of life conditions, particularly um, that, you know, my mom getting ill when I was in my early 20s and dying, really kind of shifted so much around kind of um, becoming involved in psychotherapy and counselling and uh, grassroots kind of radical forms of co-counselling and psychological development so kind of that was another piece of the puzzle. And then, of course, being involved in different sort of spiritual traditions and, and ultimately the Dharma, kind of weaving that in. Um, that's a bit of a long answer to your question, <laughs> but that's some of the kind of threads in my own life which have have led to this um, interest. And also through, you know, not just as a teenager, but, you know, since then, many different cycles of um you know, action, care in different ways, and then seeing, you know, getting to a burnout point, um, and, and and trying to, you know, more, you know, little by little over the years, learn from that and learn what mitigates that, and learn what can prevent that, and learn the preventative um, strategies and skills that can support sustainability in the long term. I found it really interesting in your book that you talk about uh, compassion as also being an, an impermanent phenomena in the sense that um, you can't sort of just keep the lights on in a, and act in that way, sort of full blast all of the time. It too arises and, and ceases and has its own cycles, um, which, uh, well, sort of the ideal of compassion is one thing and then how one actually acts and when and how one can act on it uh, is obviously <laughs> dependent on so many other things. So you you bring, I mean, this is lovely thing about your book, you bring so many things to the book, like the sort of psychological and the, the creative and we'll, we'll speak about those um as we go along in this conversation and it's also fundamentally based on the dharma it's based on the brahma viharas um sometimes called the divine abode so we can talk about that but i'm curious about what happened when this sort of radical uh, kind of left oriented 
political activist person who also I hadn't I wasn't aware of that story about your mum's illness and death in the 20s you know someone who's also had to deal with or work through your uh, kind of familial dukkha then encounters the dharma um I'm curious like how did you encounter the dharma and what was that like in in this area well it wasn't a natural fit at first I have to say (laughs) Coming from, you know, quite a kind of radical feminist, lesbian, separatist point in my life at that time. Um, But, you know, also with this deep curiosity, I think, of like, what can help? What what can support me and others long term? And realizing that there was, you know, sustenance needed not only from, you know, psychological support, but also from spiritual support. And I was very involved in the in the 90s in uh, kind of feminist paganism and, you know, got a lot from that, from the rituals and from connecting with those um, kind of pagan roots, I guess, which, you know, particularly on this land that we call, uh, you know, whatever we call it, England, <laughs> the UK, um, you know, can really connect us with this land. And... But then realizing that I think I needed, I, you know, I needed more kind of uh, tangible practices and something that um, could meet me more, kind of mind, body, spirit. Um, it's hard to sort of put into words this really, but you know, exploring lots of different traditions, and I really did like, you know, touch into lots of different um, traditions and Buddhist groups and really tried a lot of different things out um, and kept on coming up against the kind of glitches of how do I fit, you know, um, my political activism and awareness with, you know, something like the Buddha Dharma, which has this, you know, um, often very patriarchal flavor to it, a sometimes very misogynist flavor, um, where it seemed sometimes at first encounter that there was, you know, emphasis on, you know, put your feelings to one side, don't be angry, particularly as someone who, you know, had really found a lot of empowerment through feminism and through, you know, taking my space and, you know, finding my, um, feeling empowered and and fired by my anger you know, to come across those kind of messages was really a kind of difficult dance at first. And, um, but then I came across, you know, writers and teachers who were encompassing, you know, some of this spiritual um, practice with political engagement, with socially engaged Buddhism. And uh, I realized that there was also this lineage um, that I could tap into and where I could, you know, find a place. And I think one of the key moments was when I um, had the good fortune to be in California um, in in 2000, and I went to Spirit Rock Retreat Center, and I went to a retreat that was for lesbians. And just walking into that room, um, you know, the tears started to flow and the teacher started speaking and there was this overwhelming embodied sense of I've come home, I've come Mm -hmm. home. I found a place where I'm explicitly welcome and that really opened a Dharma door for me and was, was really a big step into this whole world, which is often, you know, very complicated and complex around, you know, identity and dharma and self and not self. Um, and again, another uh, way of really kind of exploring and this kind of archaeology, the discovery, the curiosity that continues really to this day. I think it's, a, it's, such, a, uh, it's such a big question, isn't it? This uh, The difference between... Um, uh, like political view, let's say, that's so based on maybe categories and identity, let's say. Um, and it, what you're talking about, where you come to in this book, in terms of the subtle art of caring, which takes um, takes seriously the fact that social 
uh, distress is not evenly spread. Let's put it, you know, it's just a very simple way of putting it. Like um, Dukkha and our life courses and the opportunities are very unevenly distributed in our society. And, and so is... Um, so is being made vulnerable, so is precarity, uh, uh, and yet it's exactly some of the categorical, the, the categories that need to be undone in order to be fully whole as a person, isn't it? Like, and, and to be liberated and to be able to move on uh, and to reclaim one's own uh creativity, freedom, initiative. Um, I, I do find it a really interesting juxtaposition. You know, I, I grew up in a highly politicized environment in apartheid South Africa and had a very similar process of being mobilized to care and also overwhelmed and unclear what was possible to, you know, any action seemed completely... Um, not able to touch the scope of the uh, and the scale and the forms of the of the harm that were being done. Um, you also talk about in in the introduction to the book, like coming into a retreat and just realizing, like your own assumptions about people, fixed opinions about people, which is a very left phenomenon, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You know, men are this, women are this. Uh, you know, yeah. It's sort of read through this this sort of a categorical history, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I would remember going on an early retreat and just going to the teacher and saying, "Why isn't you know everyone's really angry here? Why aren't they expressing their anger?" And you know, later thinking, actually, I was the one who was angry. I had the angry, you know, lenses on. That's all I saw was like rage completely projected out onto everybody and you know by this time I had you know done some psychotherapy and I knew about projection but this was a whole other level of like ah oh, okay that's just my view that's just my mm. view it's one view of many mm. yeah yeah so I suppose like the you know like dharma practice fundamentally works on the mind right and the and the poisons and how one responds to the world is so different uh, depending on the presence of the poisons in our own mind. Yes, and, you know, one's conditions and views and a whole, you know, yeah, all the different stuff that makes up what we call ourselves. Mm. And I think, you know, being able to have some lightness with that is something that, the Dharma has really um, offered me and, you know, there've been so many kind of, there's so much, there's, 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 there's a real deep gift in that, in being able to take oneself more lightly, you know, at the same time as taking these concerns really seriously, but that, you know, that sort of, you know, elusive, almost um, paradoxical, you know, being able to hold both that lightness and, you know, the seriousness of where we are, you know, as a species globally and, and, you know, and at the same time have the flexibility, have the, the ability to kind of shift and change and, you know, constantly re-examine, okay, where have I got into a groove here? Where, where am I, you know, plowing the same old furrow that hasn't got me anywhere before? Mm. Mm. So the, this this book, which is um, well, the title is a subtle art of caring, and the subtitle is a guide to sustaining compassion. So of all of the Dharma tools, if you like, that we have in this area, you've you've honed in on the Brahma Viharas um, as a as a way to engage in this area as a sort of a, a set of tools and a, and a bit of an answer, if you like, to this problem that we're talking about that um yeah, hopefully hopefully at some level or all we we all have <laughs> um uh so i wonder why why the brahma viharas what was it that what is it in the brahma viharas that for you speaks to this 
Yeah, I mean, there are, I think, you know, quite a lot of different um, forms and structures within the Dharma that could be used. I mean, obviously, the kind of Four Noble Truths and Tasks is another way of approaching this whole area. But partly I chose the Brahma Viharas because of the poem by Longchenpa that I quote in the introduction. Longchenpa was a 14th century Tibetan um, practitioner, writer, teacher. And I first heard this poem from one of my teachers, John Peacock, and I was really struck by the way that it so beautifully and concisely links all the Brahma Viharas together and makes it clear that you know, each of them depend on the other and the compassion at the heart, this this image of the um, the bloom, the beautiful bloom of compassion, really relies on the support of the other Brahmaviharas of metta, of joy, of equanimity. Um, so it felt really fitting to have a kind of poem at the heart of this, you know, work which tries to bring in creativity and practice together um, so that was one of the reasons. And I think just from my own explorations and practice of the Brahma Viharas, um, you know, sensing more and more into, you know, as they're described as boundless and infinite, that they, they're, they're, they really just have so much to offer in these times. And in their in their kind of interactions with each other, in how they balance each other, in how they complement each other, in how they alleviate each other, that just feels like there's, you know, and I've just really offered some starting points in this book, and I really hope that people kind of kind of can pick them up and flesh them out and use their own imaginations, practices, creativity to you know, find their own ways into these to these cultivations the capacities of the human heart which are you know even when they're you know they're most obscured and feel like they're a million miles away they are intrinsic they're part of our our you know they're part of the deal as human beings that we have these capacities and uh yeah that's that's how it all came together I found the um, Lumchempa poem. Have you got it at hand? Do you want to read it? Yeah. So it goes like this. Out of the soil of friendliness grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, watered by the tears of joy, sheltered beneath the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. I was really struck in working with you on this book. Um, Sort of pre-publication, that you you had these two uh, two motives. Maybe the one was actually it's it's what you do is deeply deeply traditional in some ways. It's a it's a it's a presentation of the Brahma Viharas in a way that has a lot of integrity to the Buddhist tradition and really sort of trying to understand. Um, as clearly as possible what what is <clears throat> what is involved in that the contemplation of that brahma bihara is what you know how that is done how do they relate to each other and then on the other hand you've presented it in a way that's extremely easy to um grasp and engage and um you know you don't have to be a buddhist you don't have to be uh uh, you know, learning the text, you don't have to be reading or engaging with the Pali to be able to really get to the heart of it. So actually you present it under different words. You talk about um, uh, befriending, enjoying, caring, letting be. Um, you also you also start with something before the Brahma Viharas. Maybe you want to talk about that. Yeah, so the first chapter is called Pausing. And the original early, early inspiration for this came from a story that I haven't, I, I tried to track it down in the writing of the book and I still haven't managed to track it down, but it's a story that I heard about a retreat that Thich Nhat Hanh, the um, beloved Vietnamese Zen master, socially, who said to invent it, you know, engaged Buddhism, a retreat that he led in the States many, many, many years ago for activists and all these activists gathered together and they were like, right, you know, we're really going to like 
do this thing and talk about activism and do activism. And the first day he said, no, we're, we're just going to practice. We're just going to walk and sit and silence. And they're like, okay, okay, well, we'll do it for a day. This is, this is, I've been elaborating this story, but anyway, but we'll do it for a day, you know, and then the next day we'll really get down to it. So the next day came around and he said, no, and today we're still going to just walk and sit and take time and be silent. They were like, oh, you know, okay getting a bit impatient, you know, and then the third day comes along. And again, he says, no, we're just going to. So this story really impacted me. I thought, you know, that is, that's just genius because, you know, this very word activism contains act. And there's so much about, you know, if I'm not doing, if I'm not engaged, if I'm not, then, you know, there can be a terrible sense of kind of guilt, of shame, of, um, you know, just, yeah, self-criticism that comes in. And so it can be really, for any of us who are called to care in whatever way that is, whether that's in our, you know, immediate personal familial lives or in the wider world, you know, there's, there's often this sense of there's, you know, there's there's an infinite amount of things to do and that can be done and that should be done. And, you know, if I'm not doing them, you know, who am I, you know? don't have the right to whatever so this this emphasis on pausing and stopping really I kind of wanted to yeah have that first chapter to address that tendency that some of us can have of like right let's get on let's do it no let's actually pause and stop first and I mean this is a lot what what you know Buddhist practice what Dharma practice offers us is this potential of you know, taking a breath, stopping, feeling our feet on the ground and, you know, unhooking a little bit from all the multiple kind of pressures and drivers that are assailing us. And I was also inspired by the two people that I, um, who's, you know, that I interviewed in the chapter because the book has many different conversations that weave through it. So um, Zohar and Nathan are, uh, to friends, colleagues, teachers who uh, offer retreats that combine, um, you know, engaged practice with meditation and sort of having experienced these retreats, you know, in the midst of being quite deeply engaged, for example, harvesting olives in the occupied West Bank, you know, for the, to have this kind of like time a day, okay, we're going to stop now and we're going to pause and we're going to digest. Really counterintuitive in the midst of urgency to do that. But so important. And, you know, I got to see through that experience and various others how that is really essential and how, you know, as many people, you know, Tiknahan and many others say that that, that is, you know, that, that coming back, that, you know, re, you know, filling the vessel so that we can continue to pour is so vital to check in with the body, with the heart, with the mind as best we can to resource ourselves for the next step. Cause it's very easy. And I find myself doing this, of course, <laughs> you know, it happens still. And again and again, like getting on that, that wheel of like urgency and emergency yeah, that's long answer to the question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, it raises two two questions for me. The one is about um, embodiment, uh, which we can come back to in a second. But also the other is about this sort of um, language of, well, I suppose it's not just urgency and emergency, but our own uh, samskaras, our own habits of mind get amplified in those processes of urgency and emergency. Um, so, you know, what, there's all different languages we can use, but the idea of sort of making a gap of being able to see more clearly, uh, it's not just a sort of pace thing. It's also a wisdom thing um, to to step out of habit, to get to see one's own views and how they may be <laughs> shaping and contributing, even with the best uh, will possible um to uh yeah sort of where one one is part of those systems that are also trying to intervene absolutely the one's own reactivity which is you know one translation for dukkha of course and to see yeah like you say where those habit patterns are are in operation 
Um, so important, yeah, and yeah, like you say, the clarity, the wisdom that can come, even even in stopping for a moment and pausing, um, can just have such huge benefits. So the other part is em- embodiment. It's such a language at the moment. I think there's a sort of explosion in an, in the understanding of uh, what you know we can talk about in one extreme kind of trauma like a full trauma state, but but also just the daily moment-by-moment regulation of the body's nervous system. Um, I'm reading some stuff about kind of vagus nerve and work with the vagus nerve at the moment, like these processes of regulating the body so that one is more able to rest and recover, but also more aware of, of where we're acting from, these activated states, I suppose, which is so easy to do in, in activist and in urgent and emergent situations. So I found it interesting that you were bringing into the writing of this book in a very sort of seamless way, um, a knowledge and awareness of, of the issues of working with the body and how we get triggered in a, in a bodily sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's key. And like you say, it's, it's, it's really in the zeitgeist at the moment, embodiment and yeah, the ways that we can soothe the vagus nerve and move from fight, flight, freeze, and all the other, uh, you know, trauma responses to rest and digest. And, you know, my understanding, these practices are about becoming more embodied and that's not a straightforward journey for many of us because of, you know, often of trauma, of intergenerational trauma. Um, and I think there's more and more understanding that, you know, of the, of the whole. I think, you know, kind of 20, 30 years ago when I came into practice, certainly I was very much living, you know, above the neck <laughs> or even, you know, like outside of the of the body. And that that journey of sort of you know bringing awareness downwards and keeping keeping on bringing it down um, into the body and into you know into the ground into that you know possibility of touching the earth as the the Buddha is said to have done on the the night of, of of his awakening that you know to me that that points to more and more like how do we resource and the body, how do we become aware more and more of our embodiment, of what's impacting us, you know, the way that what happens in the mind is mirrored by what happens in the body, that these two are not separate. And, you know, the separation is something that, you know, you know, we many of us have inherited from the history of kind of Western philosophy and ways of seeing that have then, you know, impacted how we relate to ourselves and to each other. Mm. Yeah. It's an interesting conversation with uh, other ways of, or some more usual ways of thinking about uh, meditation, for example. So even the idea of samadhi, some of the interpretations of what samadhi means moving from an idea of concentration or absorption, say, sort of, to, to, uh, a gathering, a wholeness, uh, well-being, um, and that samadhi is, if you like, some of the ways in you know, the meditations that are part of the samadhi uh, group of meditations, including some of the Brahma Viharas, but also other other forms of absorption that are really about deeply engaging in the whole whole body sensations mm. and and yeah. therefore allowing some of that. Uh, kind of rest and recovery and and uh, nurture of of one's well-being from which to act in the- yeah absolutely and you know this sort of points to you know that these part this, this this way of the teaching is about deep resourcing and contentment and joy and you know often it gets like it's all about suffering and the end of suffering but yes yeah, samadhi and and the way, like you say, the Brahma Viharas are also absorption practices. It's really, you know, and I can see this more and more in the zeitgeist around Dharma, this emphasis on, you know, the joy, the delight, the contentment, the upliftment, the, all of that kind of whole realm of practice. Um, 
which, you know, perhaps perhaps when the Dharma came to the West, you know, it got kind of funneled down these channels of kind of, right, we've got to grit our teeth now, people, and we're going to like, you know, get our heads involved in this. And it's a very intellectual business. And, you know, yes, there is that, you know, the importance of clarity of understanding, but how more and more do we bring the body in? Do we bring the whole being in? And do we emphasize that, that resourcing, that nourishment? Mm-hmm. You draw on this word that's not your, I can't remember who who um, found, who refound this word, but this word respair. It's yes. really beautiful. What does it mean? Well, actually, I did a little bit of research um, before this podcast and I realized, I mean, in the book, I, I, I got it from an article from a kind of secondary source and I researched it, but it's actually from a medieval Scottish writer so it's not not an English word. It was written originally in Middle Scots by Andrew of Wintoun, a Scottish chronicler who lived between 1350 and 1423. And I haven't found, you know, the archaeologist bit of me wants to go and find the original text, of course, and look at it and like see the context. Um, but yeah, as I understand it, respair is renewed or reinvigorated hope and a recovery from anguish or hopelessness. And yeah, I mean, it also, you know, of course, when you hear the sound respair, it also conjures repair, which I like, restoration, renewal. Um, and, yeah, it's lovely to think that these words that have been lost can come back into our vocabulary. And, you know, the fact that they have been lost, what does that say about the tendencies of the human mind to, you know, as the neuroscientists tell us, fixate on what is difficult? be much more the kind of you know velcro for the negative like that really sticks and you know the other more kind of positive things just you know often sweep 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 off us because because of particular survival strategies and habit patterns that we've had but yeah respair like what is it like to bring that sense of hopefulness and hope is quite a complicated uh, thing in Dharma terms, as I understand mm-hmm. it, you know, there's there's a lot more writers and and thinkers from kind of Christian backgrounds who, in these times, are really talking and writing about hope, as well as, of course, as you know, political um, activists and writers. Um, but yeah, just words words are important. They are, you know, they're insubstantial and they're um, fleeting and they're translations in many ways, but you know, how we language things can really affect then our relationship, our relationship to things and how we act and how we behave. And of course, you yourself are a poet. So you're a published poet and you include some of your poetry in this book, which I think is really lovely. But I think you also have a poet sensibility in how you're writing about this terrain. And um, listeners won't yet have seen this book. It's beautifully illustrated as well by your friend and colleague Emma Burley. Um, all these sort of black and white watercolor illustrations throughout. Um, yeah, what for you is the relationship between uh, your poetry, arts, more broadly, and um, the possibility of caring and sustaining compassion in the ways that you write about? There's so much that could be said here. Um, I think, you know, I think in in essence, um, the practices, you know, that we're invited into in the Dharma are creative. You know, they are creative in the sense that we're cultivating something, we're bringing something into being, or we're also uncovering. Um, and this word bhavana, often translated as meditation, also means bringing into being or cultivating. So I think um, I think creativity is there kind of in, you know, it's there at the essence, really. Um, but, you know, in kind of over many years in my work of, you know, working in schools and libraries and many, many different kinds of community groups, um, I've seen how, you know, making something, creating something, bringing something into being, whether that is, you know, a poem or a piece of art or a craft, um, 
there is a kind of magic there which really links actually to anatta because there's a sense in which you know you kind of have to let go to some extent of you know a narrow sense of self um and you know there's also an element of samadhi in there because that sense of gatheredness that is necessary in order to kind of create in order to kind of bring something into being um you know that's also present the sense of kind of a, of a letting go of, of making something which is going to exist outside of yourself and where something can be expressed that is of you but also coming through you i realize i'm using quite kind of um uh i don't know i can't think of the right words so language that might seem a bit airy fairy to people but trying to kind of capture something that in in essence is quite sort of magical and mysterious i think you know the the art of you know that that what is art what is what is making what is what is creativity but those are some of the things that i've experienced um through witnessing other people's uh you know other people writing creating and also you know myself and it's a really common experience as a poet that um you know you think you know what you've written about but then other people kind of say actually that's all about something completely different that you had no idea about and you know someone else interprets it in their own way through their own lens through their own kind of vision um so that's one you know that's one sort of element <clears throat> i think also the way that you know making creating being creative um is also an expression of compassion can also be an expression of compassion in some ways in that when we care we want to express it and you know have really kind of moving examples of this for you know thinking of um teenagers that I've worked with who were in care who were looked after and who had were not able to look after their babies, their children, but supporting them to write poems that could then be sent to their babies. Um, and seeing the enormous care, I mean, it kind of, you know, almost brings tears to my eyes to, to remember that, that care that they were able to express, you know, that they had, you know, been separated from and, you know, enormous grief and, and trauma around that. But, to see that that potential for caring and for compassion and for connection was still there, is still there, can still be there, even under the most extreme circumstances. I mean, there's so much that has been written about, about, you know, the creativity in extreme circumstances. And you could say, well, this is where we are now. We are in extreme circumstances as a species and on our planet. And, and also what is being brought forth and what I saw in the researching of this book is being brought forth in terms of creative responses is, is extraordinarily heartening and inspiring alongside, you know, the, 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 the necessity of mourning and of grief and of rage and of heartbreak. There is that potential for the heart to open. Um, and, you know, art and activism in its broadest sense is really well documented through the centuries. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking of, you know, things like the AIDS quilts and, um, you know, XR and creativity and ways in which, again, the anatta, that these things are not one person's creation. That, you know, when you see those AIDS quilts and other, you know, forms of art like that laid out, there, you know, the combined work of thousands and thousands of people, you know, not one person who's got their name in lights, but this combined collective sense. And at best, this is what can take us through these times. Uh, the listeners won't be able to see you. I can see you at the moment. I can see you moved by, moved by that. Um... I think one of the things that strikes me about this book also is how deeply connected it is 
how deeply sangerful this book is. So on the one hand, you are sort of sitting there writing this book on your own. Um, but actually, a lot of this book has been developed in conversation. So you talked about the two people you were writing this book, this chapter on pausing in conversation with. So the, the, each of the chapters is dialogic in that way and is born out of and uh, honors your friendships and the people whose work and efforts you admire. Um, and I think that's, I'm just, you know, I think that's so important. We're talking about, you know, Buddhism coming to the West and it's almost the, as though there are these waves of um, waves of integration. Then maybe we could talk about it as an integration uh, of the Dharma that includes more and more of of us, of uh, of human life. You know, kind of quite an ascetic, quite an ascetic intellectual first wave of the Dharma. In uh, talking about kind of overall, and then we've seen more and more the Bhavana. We've seen more and more the embodiment, and um, you know, self compassion is one of the things that sort of derived. You know, we've got mindfulness, we've got self compassion, but actually, Sangha is so fundamental in this way um so i wondered if you're up for saying anything about friendship sangha i guess you know i came to the dharma already passionate about community and already seeing the enormous you know joys and benefits of that as well as the difficulties and you know we can't be too you know rose tinted about community and the, the conflicts that that can entail and um but yeah i mean it's one of the three jewels it's uh yeah i think Thich Nhat Hanh said the next buddha is or will be the sangha um we can't underestimate it in these times and yeah i i guess i wanted the book to just mirror that through the conversations and through um you know the fact that i you know i you know we we all stand on the shoulders of so many others who've gone before us and i think that sense of the collective and of really naming the collective and honoring the collective and honoring the roots honoring you know the roots of the dharma in you know centuries and centuries of practitioners mainly in asian countries you know dharma in the west you know quote unquote dharma in the west is is still like you say so new and so um you know so early so early days really and you know community sangha is what has sustained has sustained the dharma um and it's yeah so important to come back to in these times when there can be so much kind of emphasis on individuality and you know we live in a world where yeah where things can get really like boiled down over and over again to you know one individual and one person and one particular kind of teacher and this and that to keep broadening out to keep spreading out it's another expression of of anatta in a way um you know that we can't do this on our own you know when we're that sense of you know it's me against the world is something which can really feed into overwhelm and compassion fatigue so you know just in whatever ways we can that sense of it's not just me i'm not just on my own um but you know noticing when that self-construct narrows you know and it, you know in those moments of sort of going on social media and getting that out you know how many likes and how many this and how many that and who's you know oh, trying to keep broadening out all the time from those you know those kind of silos I think in her introduction Tanisra talks about this these kind of individual silos that we get ourselves into and that we that our culture is really you know reinforcing all the time um so it was really an honor to kind of weave these conversations in and you know that was a, a kind of long process at first the conversations were sort of you know uh 
just a kind of question and answer thing at the end of each chapter. And then I think you really helpfully suggested weaving them through so that they became much more a storytelling about my interactions with these friends, colleagues, other practitioners. And, um, you know, they offer so much in a way it feels, you know, you know, it's my name on the front of the book, but all those names should be on there and should all be acknowledged um, because they're, they're kind of the lifeblood of it, really. It's been really lovely to talk with you about your book. And um, it's not too long now and it'll start heading out into the world. Um, maybe just a last question of what you what are your hopes or ambitions for this book in terms of what it can do in the world? I hope it can be helpful, you know, even if it's just to one or two people. I really hope that it can offer some possibilities, some hope, some respire. Um, at best, I remember the times when I was writing it and it felt like, you know, I was really trying out the different practices and exploring them and you know, I was fortunate that I had you know some time to kind of go away and you know be in a friend's house um, or in an Airbnb and and just kind of immerse myself in it and feel that you know just in this kind of flow of possibility and absorbing more and more and, and exploring the Brahma Viharas and feeling you know feeling their resource in myself and you know that was yeah that's that's really one of the high points I think you know the whole business of sort of bringing the book out and kind of launching it and 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 you know sort of bringing it into being is just there's a whole other thing with that but at best when I remember those times of you know, of just getting up and going, okay, right, I'm going to write 2,000 words today. It doesn't matter what they are. They can just be absolute. But just trying to be in that flow and trying to trust more and more into, okay, how do I in this moment pause and befriend and enjoy and care and let be and go through that kind of cycle that I just, you know, explore in different ways in the book um, and, and, you know, taste what I can of these extraordinary, liberatory, radical practices and then try to express as best I can so that others might be able to taste them too. Wintour's Publications is part of the Tri Ratna Buddhist community and this podcast is sponsored by Future Dharma Fund a Buddhist fundraising charity which helps fund Dharma projects across the world, including ours. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to them to help them fund current and future projects like ours. You can find out more about Wintour's publications by going to our website.